Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and lovely people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brook, your horizontal host, and today we have an episode of the POTS Diaries, where we get to hear the tales of others in our community. So today we are speaking with Mel, who is a nurse, and thank you so much for joining us today, Mel. I'm so excited to be here. I am, like everyone else, sorry that people understand what it's like to be dealing with this particular monster that is hot, but I'm really happy to be here and talking with the rest of my community. Yay. So for starters, where are you and how old are you? So I am currently living in El Paso, Texas, and I will be 31 in a couple of days, actually. Happy birthday. Okay. You you. have kind of a cool job. Can you tell us what you do? Yes. So right now it wasn't the exact job I thought I was going to be when I set out on becoming a nurse. But when I started working the night shift as a nurse, I noticed that I was getting all sorts of the weird hallmark symptoms that we all know are the very trademarks of being someone who lived with POTS. Whenever I was standing up, moving, changing positions, I was getting really, really sweaty. I was getting really lightheaded. And multiple times, I actually had to move down to sit on the floor because I'm like, oh, this is not normal. This should not be happening. During that time, I was working as a nurse in a postpartum unit. I really enjoyed getting to do all that patient education with new families, but I ended up having to leave that position because my body was just not having it. I initially started my nursing career out in Colorado, that's where I'm from, in a post-operative and a pre-operative surgery unit in a hospital, and now I've moved to an ambulatory surgery center. And for people who have not quite gotten to that point in either being a patient or haven't worked in medicine, what an ambulatory surgery center is, is basically you go there, you get your surgery and you go home as soon as you're done. And my surgery center specializes in cataracts. So I take care of a ton of patients every day. It's not uncommon for us to have upwards of 28 people getting cataracts taken care of in a day. And it's really interesting to be back in the OR world because I actually do work in the OR as well now. So I do pre-op, post-op, and the operating room. Wow. So that sounds pretty intense. Yeah? It is. Thankfully, I have a lot of very good colleagues who are always on me about drinking enough water. They're like, hey, taking your salt capsule today? It's been really busy. So it really helps to have people who are supportive. And that's definitely a bit of advice I would definitely give to anyone in this community. If you have people you work with who you feel safe with, let them know what you're going through. Because sometimes when you're so busy that you feel like you can't even keep your own head above water, it's easy to forget, wait, I have a chronic health condition. I need to be extra careful compared to others. So always make sure if you can have teammates who are able and willing to remind you to do the basic stuff, like make sure that you are getting up slowly. Definitely take people up because people love to help as a general rule. 
That's great. So I'd love to come back to some of your nursing experiences and expertise in a moment, but I also want to just get to know you a little bit yeah, at the start of this. So can you tell us like, who is Mel? What is your personality like? What would your oh, friends yes. or family say? So Mel is a very quirky human being. It's probably what they would start with. <laughs> I am super into knitting, crocheting. I love to bake. So on one hand, I'm a secret 80-year-old woman, but <laughs> I also am uh, super into writing. I am actually working on an article that is going to be published soon by one of my colleagues, Charity. It's called The Gold Corner. It's for people who are currently in a family unit that has a child who is going through childhood cancer or unfortunately a child who passed from cancer. So I'm writing for them right now, and I also absolutely love cast. I feed our local trap neuter return colony. So if someone doesn't know what a TNR colony is, which is trap neuter return, it is basically the most humane way to help take care of kitties who are unfortunately on the streets because, well, as soon as a cat's feral, they're never going to be happy inside. So what we do is we go in, we get them fixed so they don't make more cats. We take care of their medical needs as best as we can, and we feed them. Okay, so please explain like I'm five years old. Why would a cat not be happy if it's feral? Well, if a kitty is feral, they're never going to be happy in a shelter trying to be in a person's house. There's actually like a critical window where if they get a, past certain age of a kitten and they don't get socialized with humans, they want nothing to do with people. Ah, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Okay, other cool things you do. What do you like to crochet and knit? My current thing I've been working on a lot are socks. I have been making so many socks lately, which is unfortunate because I can't really wear them unless they're on top of my compression hose. So it's basically like a nighttime wear thing because otherwise I'm going to overheat the day. But then that's great. So, <laughs> so I have this stereotype of nurses that you are completely nailing. And so I'm wondering if I can run it by you. It seems okay. like people who are nurses are so interested in so many different things like they're so capable they're so <laughs> able to do so many things like they have so many skills and i've noticed this they're just like doers is that accurate you know i actually have never heard someone use that as a stereotype that they feel like makes sense for nurses but it does completely make sense because unfortunately with the way that healthcare is in the united states Anything and everything that needs to get done ends up going to the nurses. So it's like, oh, you have a patient who is starting a brand new weird medication. Okay, well, I guess I'm doing all the education on this new medication for the patient, even though probably a pharmacist would be a better choice for that. Oh, your patient needs to go walk down the hall because they need to walk around after surgery. Okay, I guess I am physical therapy today. And then it's like, oh, we cleared out this patient room. They've been discharged. And then... Environmental services isn't available right now. Okay, I guess I'm in the EVS person. So that actually is probably been one of the nicer stereotypes I've heard about nurses. But yeah, anything and everything that needs to be done in healthcare that doesn't have another person available, it goes to the nurses. So we kind of do have to be jacks of all trades. Okay. Okay. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this. What are the other stereotypes of nurses? So it depends <laughs> on the unit you work on. Emergency room nurses, they tend to describe themselves as very ADHD. They're jumping around from thing to thing to thing to thing, which makes sense considering the unit they're on. 
People who are in ICU tend to be a little bit anal retentive because they have to be, because they have all these very critical medications that need to run. So in the ICU, they have something that they call drip. So if a patient is in the ICU, they're getting IV medications that are controlling everything from their heart rate to their blood pressure and everything. And if any of these run out at any time, that's real bad. So ICU nurses do need to be very precise. Nurses pediatrics tend to be very overprotective. Because again, we're taking care of tiny humans. Of course, they're going to be overprotective. And unfortunately, as a lot of people who are in the POC community know, there are some nurses who unfortunately are kind of bullies. I hate to say that about my profession, but I have definitely come across bullies in this profession. And yeah, it's not all of them, but there's enough nurses that are just real big jerk faces to use my very mature language to describe people who are being mean. (laughs) <laughs> who will say stuff like, for example, the CNA, their job is to, you know, do hygiene stuff for patients and be a nursing assistant. They might be like, well, that's absolutely disgusting. I'm not going to help clean up my patient. I'm not the CNA. And it's like, no, don't say that. It's still your patient. That's still a person who deserves dignity and respect. Not just the patient, but the CNA. Let's all work together and be nice. So unfortunately, Foley does kind of fall into nursing, but I could go into a huge conversation about why bullying is an issue in nursing, but that's not why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I know we're here to talk about your journey before POTS, during POTS. So can we start with before POTS? Did you have a life before POTS? And can you give us a snapshot of what that looked like? So for me, it's hard to say exactly when POTS really started to really impact my life. But if I was to give like a really rough estimate of when it really first started to flare up, it would have been back in about September of 2015. I was in a bad car accident and I got a real nice concussion. And as I was recovering, I noticed that if I stood up too quick, I really was getting dizzy. That had always sort of been a thing for me, but it was always in control when I was younger and didn't happen all the time, all the time. As I was recovering from the concussion, I decided to switch into going into nursing and I was able to run around like crazy in a very busy hospital pre-op area with a lot of patients with very different needs. I was able to lift and move patients and basically just get everything that needed to get done, done. But as soon as I moved to El Paso, because I am actually a military spouse as well, I ended up not being able to start work in the hospital that I had been working at at, during nursing school and as a CNA. And I had to work on the night shift because I really didn't have any other options. And as soon as I started on the night shift, I don't know how often everyone goes into the idea of epigenetics, but I feel like that was the environmental cue having to be on the night shift and having my circadian rhythm all messed up that finally switched it to the point where it was very symptomatic and I got sick. That's a really interesting point you're making. And I feel like we should just make sure everybody understands what you're talking about. So you're saying epigenetics. So basically environmental factors that change Mm -hmm. the expression of your genetics, right? Yeah. So basically then all of us and every single one of ourselves kind of have an instruction manual for what our bodies are going to do. Depending on certain things, some of these factors will automatically turn on once people hit a certain age. For example, puberty. As soon as you hit past a certain age point, markers will turn on and people will develop 
secondary sex traits and describe that in non-medicalese is the stuff we see as stereotypically, you know, post-puberty stuff. Like for people who have XYs or male genetics, their voices tend to go deep. They get broader in their shoulders. People who have XX or female genetics develop breasts, get menstrual periods. But other things, such as POTS, you might have to have certain things happen in your environment for the switch to turn on. So I know one of my friends who also has POTS, she actually got it after she had mono, which is another thing that could happen. Some people end up developing something like POTS after they have a viral infection, and it just switches the switch on. So it's one of those things that just because you have it in the instruction manual that's in every single one of your cells, Unless you have the environmental trigger to flip on the switch, you might not get it. So, so that's interesting because we oftentimes hear people say that they think POTS might happen after some sort of infection mm-hmm. because it is an immune response or some sort yeah. of maybe autoimmune thing. But I had not thought about the epigenetic possibility mm-hmm. that it's doing something there. That's interesting. Yes. It could. It's one of those things that, unfortunately, I've looked into the research for what actually causes POTS, and it seems like there's just a general consensus of the doctors going, wait, yeah. what is <laughs> Shrug, who knows, right? Yes. Yeah. There's just so many different ways that we could possibly describe something that happens with autoimmune things, as it is epigenetic switch, like after the virus shows up and is messing with our genetics, because viruses are so weird they hijack our own cells to make more of themselves and they never really leave us after we have them who knows is it a chicken or an egg sort of thing or is it because we've had the virus that did it or does the virus mess with our genetic material or was it just a virus seeing there and continuing to reproduce things made our own natural immune system wake up and go nuts who knows so it sounds like you had a job where you were working the night shift Mm -hmm. and working the night shift is known to be very hard on the body. Yeah. And terrible. (laughs) It sounds like you no longer work on the night shift. Do you think that anything switched back or is it still here even once you got out of that situation? It's here to stay now. It's sort of like working the night shift and messing with that just through the switch for me to be more symptomatic in all other ways. So I didn't used to get so sweaty for no apparent reason. Now I get randomly super sweaty for no reason, which is super attractive. I'm like, oh, cool. Thanks, body. I appreciate that. (laughs) If I don't really take my time when I'm standing up, I get the weird tunnel vision on the side. And all day, every day, I am wearing compression hose up to the side eyes, which is like, well, it's just one of those things we deal with. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I can sweat a little bit now, but for about 10 years, I could not sweat at all. Oh, that's one of those things where the grass is always greener, right? So not sweating. And I lived in California. So I would sometimes just be so desperate that I would just walk right into the ocean or walk into a stream or a lake because I just had to cool down. (laughs) And so I had not thought very much about how unfun it would be to be randomly so sweaty because I had been thinking about how unfun it was to randomly have to get soaked to cool off. (laughs) Yeah, it's just so wild how like all these little random things are just controlled automatically by our bodies and different people with different subsets of us are like, oh, well, you get to sweat too much. You won't sweat at all. You're going to yeah. be able to get overheated, even if it's slightly above 60. And, oh, you're going to hate the cold. 
I always wish that there's a co-op where the non-sweaters could take some of the sweat from the over-sweaters right? and Wouldn't we could all great? just, because on average we get it right probably. Yeah. Okay. So that is what set off your POTS. Mm -hmm. Did you have a hard time getting diagnosed? Yes and no, which is a weird way to put it, but I am incredibly lucky in that I have a very close friend who also has POTS. Unfortunately, she has a lot of other comorbidities that make it a lot more complicated for her. She has Ehlers-Dano, which is super common as well. She has a GRI malformation and everything. So when I started to explain the things I was going through, she's like, hey, you probably have hot. But uh. it was one of those things that it seems odd to say it, but sometimes I still feel like I almost have imposter syndrome around the condition I have because I'm like, well, I am sick, but I'm not as sick as her. So am I actually really sick? So what do you have to do to stay functional? I have to be wearing compression hose every single day. I have to supplement a lot with salt. I take a salt pill every morning and usually during the day, I eat two or three of the chewable salt electrolyte tabs. I find that those are just easier compared to trying to mix in an electrolyte drink. And I drink tons and tons of water and I am on mitodrine. So I do know that it is real. I do know it is legit, but it's just sometimes I feel like it's so easy to see people who have the same illness that are impacted in more severe ways and think, wait, is this really real? Or I don't know if maybe that's just something I struggle with, but it's one of those things that with any condition, there's always a big spectrum of how people are impacted differently. And just because you happen to be on this more milder end doesn't mean that you're still having a harder time compared to someone who thought it passed it. So what does a rough POTS day look like for you? Do you ever get to where you can't really do your job or you're just always able to power through? As of right now, I have not had to call out of work because of POTS. I am very grateful for that. But it's one of those things I'm sure all of us are very well versed in the idea of the spoon theory. If I'm really having a day where I'm pushing myself hard because it's been an absolutely crazy day, when I get home, I have to lay down, I have to take a nap, and it catches up with me really bad. So when I'm having a particularly bad POTS day, I will be having the orthostatic intolerance a lot more. I look down at my Fitbit and I'm like, oh, wow, would you look at that? My heart rate is 15 beats higher than it normally is right now. Wow, that's not cool. I realized that since I do have this condition, I do need to be a bit more careful compared to a lot of people with, you know, days where you push yourself too hard. So I did request to be moved to part-time at work, which I'm very grateful and very lucky in that I'm able to do that financially with my spouse. Not everyone can do that, but I'm looking into other ways that I can try to support myself because student loans, right? <laughs> Right. Right. So we are often asking the POTS patients, what do you wish more healthcare practitioners knew about POTS? And I am eager to hear that answer from you, but I would also love to hear what do you wish more patients knew about being a nurse and like, what can patients do to make your job easier and what can they do to help you help them better? It's always interesting when people ask me this because it's one of those things that in a perfect world, we wouldn't be having to ask our patients to try to make our lives easier because there would be enough of us that patients wouldn't even need to worry about how are the nurses doing. 
because I hate that that's even a conversation we have to have because patients, when they come to the hospital are with the exception of maybe labor and delivery, but even then you could argue that they're not really at their best because they're exhausted. They just had to try to human. They're tired. They're not feeling well. And the responsibilities is my nurse doing okay. Shouldn't at all go to the patients, but unfortunately that's not really the reality of what healthcare looks like in the United States. From what I understand, the only state still in the United States that has mandated safe ratios for nursing is California. Because there's actually healthcare research that has shown that for every additional patient, a nurse on a general care floor has above four patients, the chances of a patient having a really bad complication goes up exponentially for each additional patient. Oh, California, that's interesting. It, it is, and it's scary because California is the only state where I believe that they're still on four to four on days that may have switched for night shift. But I mean, on night shift, it's a little easier to have extra patients a little bit because ideally people are sleeping, but they're not really if you've ever been in the hospital setting. <laughs> so just to clarify, what you're saying is that any time that a nurse has to look after more than four patients... On a general care floor. On a general care floor. Okay. So that fifth patient makes it so that all five of those patients are more likely to have something bad happen. If you add in a sixth, seventh, or eighth, it just goes up exponentially. And what kinds of bad outcomes are you talking about? To be super blunt, things that can kill people. Like developing sepsis, developing a pulmonary embolism. Again, I really don't say this to try to scare people, but it's the reality. Wow. Well, it speaks to the importance of nurses because what are you not doing for your four patients if you have five or six or seven or eight? So the biggest thing is we have less time to actually be in there with each individual patient. A lot of the things that start to change early, like for example, if someone is starting to develop, let's say, they might just start acting a little confused. So like if you went in and talked to Mr. Smith at the start of the day, he was really cheerful. He was able to explain exactly all what his family was doing on their vacation and was just like really with it. And then when you go back at lunch to give him his lunchtime medication, you notice that he seems really confused. He doesn't really exactly know what's going on. You'd be able to catch like, ooh, something's not right. Let's look into this a bit more. But let's say that at the start of the day, you just found out that one of your coworkers had to call in and now everyone's getting sick patients today. You may have only had five minutes to chat with Mr. Smith and you wouldn't have had time to learn like where exactly he is upstairs. Because again, a lot of the times we do have elderly patients. So you might have just assumed, oh, well, it seems like he is sort of on top of it. I mean, we haven't really had the time to talk, but... He might have been a bit confused earlier in the day. I'm not going to worry about it. But then by the time that he starts to go down more and more and more, you miss the critical window where an easy intervention can help a lot. So like, for example, for the case of sepsis, and also in case someone's listening and doesn't know what sepsis is, sepsis is an infection that goes into your blood. The infection is just swimming all around your body. Just say Mr. Smith was having a hip replacement. He may have had some bacteria hanging out nearby his incisions, by his hip. But if he ends up with the sepsis, the bacteria that were just hanging out by his head have now moved into his body and are just kind of circulating everywhere, which is no bueno, not good. 
Yeah. So I can see where this is huge. Okay. So back to this question of what patients can do to make your life easier or to help you help them more. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, now that I scared you about nursing ratios, (laughs) (laughs) so some of the most easy things you can do to really help us help you are, is as much as possible, try to give us heads up about things before you need it immediately. Because let's say you hit your call bell and you're like, oh, I need to use the bathroom right now, right now, right now. We might be in a situation where all of us and all of our nursing aides are super preoccupied. It's not that we don't care, but we are stuck in another room. We can't get out. Someone's getting a dressing change. If you have to go right now, right now, there might not be time to get to you in time before you are using the bathroom, or for example. So as much as possible, Try to anticipate when you might use the bathroom like soonish. If you're like, you're starting to feel like, oh, I'm starting to feel like I might need to use the bathroom. I'm going to hesitate now to say, hey, no rush. When you can, I'd like to try to use the restroom. Just like you would do on a car ride. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Else? We are giving medications in the hospital. Ideally, we want to give it exactly when it's due. But we actually, depending on the hospital you're at, there is like a 30-minute window before and after of like a buffer zone. So try to be understanding if it's a little bit later than you expected. Because I mean, of course, with people who have POTS, we usually have a ton of medication. And depending on how many other patients in your has, it might be a little bit late. So try to be understanding, of course, if it's something that you need to have right at that time, make sure as a nurse knows, like, hey, this is really important that for me and my health that it needs to happen right now. Like, For example, if you know that you tend to get really, really symptomatic if you don't get your labetal all at a certain time every day, just try to let them know when they first come in to see you at the start of their shift. They're like, hey, just so you know, every day, um, I'm really careful about always taking this medication at this time. I know that it's really hard with how busy you guys can get, but this is a medication that's really important. But for someone, let's say, who has mast cell activation and as long as they get all their Benadryl they need in a day, it doesn't matter exactly when. Be a bit flexible with it. And okay, the last, great. and the last big one is around pain control. I would say because unfortunately, a lot of us also sometimes deal with chronic pain. If you are getting pain medications and it's not working, you need to talk to the doctor. Unfortunately, because as much as we try to advocate, we don't have the ability to change medications. Mm-hmm. If you're hurting so, so bad, don't be afraid to say, hey, look, I need to talk to the doctor because then if we're able to say, hey, look, my patient is in 10 out of 10 pain. We've maxed out all of the medication options you have given us. Can you please come talk to the patient? They're more apt to try to get something in to help you more because there are definitely, unfortunately, some nurses who feel like it's their job to try to like, well, I don't want a patient who gets to get an addiction of an opioid. Most of us, like the vast majority of nurses, understand that if someone's in the hospital and they're in pain, that's not the time to be worrying about that. They don't want their patients to be hurting. Yeah. Okay, so now I want to ask you the opposite question. As a POTS patient, what do you wish more doctors or nurses understood about POTS? The biggest one, and this was actually part of my diagnosis journey, is we really are not making this up. And... When you are getting ready to do a test to try to rule out other things, make sure that you are making it very clear to your patient that this test, you're not really necessarily expecting anything to come out of it. For example, when I did my Holter monitor test, the 
doctor who I was seeing didn't even tell me that she didn't even know what POTS was until after the halter monitor test was done, which I'm like, I even told you that's what I was worried about. And she just was like, well, I, I saw absolutely nothing. There, uh, there's nothing wrong with you. It's not helpful and it's very disheartening. And I just wish that more doctors were afraid to say, hey, look, this test is to rule something out. If it doesn't show me something, it doesn't mean that I think you're making it up. It just means that it's not this one thing that I thought it could be. Yeah. Do you have anything you'd want to say to your fellow POTS patients who may be listening? Don't give up. If you're having a bad experience with a doctor, it's not you. There is absolutely no shame in trying to find a doctor who you know specializes in the condition that you're working with. That's actually the reason why I was able to get my diagnosis. I went to a Facebook group and I was like, hey, has anyone seen a doctor in this area who specializes in this condition? Found that doctor, saw that they took my insurance, and I actually ended up crying when the doctor said, oh, no, I don't need to do a ton of extra tests on you. I know exactly what you're dealing with. Let's try some medicine and see if it helps you. And it was just amazing. I feel that it's not unfair to say that most of the listeners are probably women since POTS does disproportionately affect women. It's really easy to go into the saying of having doctors like, oh, well, you're just stressed out. You're anxious. If someone's saying stuff like that, find a different doctor. It's hard. It's a lot of extra mental work that we shouldn't have to do. But unfortunately, with the condition we have, we do have to advocate for ourselves in that way. Amen. That is great, great advice. So my last question is, why did you agree to let us share your story today? Well, I do feel that unfortunately, because I do know that my friend who also has POTS has had a lot of bad healthcare experiences. I think in some way that helps to know, hey, look, there's even some nurses who have this condition. I think it helps with the feeling of community. And there's just so many little things like I forgot to mention earlier. For example, if you know that you're going in for an outpatient surgery, ask the anesthesiology team if they are doing what their exact rules are about stopping eating and drinking. Because a lot of people assume that it's still the, oh, you can't, you have to stop at midnight the night before. But there's actually a lot of anesthesiologists now who are like, hey, as long as you stop two or three hours before, you're fine. So you can keep pushing your fluid so that you feel good. You can also be like, hey, I have a condition where I need to be wearing compression hose. Is it okay if I leave on my compression hose? Because here's the secret. Most of the time, we don't care. It's like, oh, hey, just so you know, the patient is wearing compression stockings. Cool. They're getting a procedure done on their nose. I really don't care that they're wearing compression stockings. <laughs> it never hurts to ask at the beginning and be like, hey, these are the things I need to do for my health. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the times we're afraid to ask these questions because you don't want to be a bother. But a lot of the times, like if you go in and tell the nurses like, hey, this is something that works really well for me. Is it okay if I do this? Most of the time they're like, yeah, sure. You do you. Oh, that's great. Great. Any more tips in the nursing bucket? Yeah. So if you aren't doing it already, it's a very, very good idea to get data on what your body is doing. So I do have one of those little wrist blood pressure cuffs. I'm not always as good as I could be about constantly taking my pressure, but I wear a Fitbit and I'm looking at what my heart is doing at different times a day. It doesn't have to be anything as intense as, you know, like keeping a big journal about like every single day what you're doing. But if you can notice like, oh, when I'm doing this particular chore, I've noticed that my heart rate is going up. 
you can find ways to maybe adapt it. Like, oh, whenever I'm doing dishes, my heart rate is going really high. I guess maybe I should look at getting a bar stool and sit when I'm doing this. So get your data and analyze what is going on with your body because one of the things that you learn in nursing school is even the quote-unquote growth stuff, like a patient's Foley catheter that's measuring their amount of pee. That's just data. Your body is letting you know what is going on by what it puts out. So keep track of what everything that your body is doing. Ultimately, our bodies are just giving us lots of data every day. That's a great spin. When it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's just data. Exactly. But that's just our bodies trying to say, hey, look, this isn't working. And just take that data and find a way to make it work for you. Excellent. Well, Mel, thank you so much for sharing your story and all of your great insights with us. We really appreciate it. And, and I know that everybody listening wishes you only the best going forward. And now they probably wish they could have you as a nurse next time they need a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice because, again, I, I absolutely love taking care of my patients. And when you do have an experience with a nurse who's being mean, Know that there's at least one nurse out there who hears you, understands, and knows that you're not making anything up. Because unfortunately, sometimes healthcare professionals might assume that. So there's at least one of us out here, but I can say from my own personal experience with my colleagues, there's a lot of us. Oh, good. That's so nice. Well, thank you again. And hey, listeners, that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We'll be back next week. But until then, thank you for listening. Remember, you're not alone. And please join us again soon. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax-deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.